I'm going to tell you a story. Uh, in fact, the whole talk today is a kind of fascinating story. Um, the story is true, I believe, but it's also a kind of lure. Um, it's only partly true. Uh, that is, I'm luring, the story lures you along, I'm leading you along by withholding the central truth. Um, and you might be fascinated with the story, but in your fascination with the story, you may fail to see what I'm doing to you, the way that the story works. And what I'm going to claim is that ultimately, I'm, I'm going to start, I'm going to tell you a story about theology. Uh, but what I'm claiming about the way that I'm telling this story is that this is, this is the way that every story is told, and I will demonstrate that to you. Um, and that ultimately then, the fascination with, or the way that a, a understanding is conducted, that there is always something missing. So, let's start, you know, what happened to theology? My partly true story. And the way that this commonly gets told is that, well, we had an authentic <coughs> Christianity, we had an authentic uh, theological understanding and then Augustine comes and Augustine fuses uh, a Neoplatonic understanding uh, and by Neoplatonism what we mean by that he is positing the idea that in some way the truth as in the Platonic forms are uh, completely transcendent and we don't have access to that truth. So the idea in Neoplatonism is that through some sort of experience or ecstatic experience that we can hopefully attain to the truth, but actually we're sort of separate. Uh, again, I think that the fusion of Greek philosophy with theology is a great problem. Then, in the, as I tell you this story, we you know whether we talk about Augustine or Constantine first, but certainly a Constantinian Christianity, in which uh, everybody knows who Constantine was, uh, that he was the emperor who, you know, he saw the cross and converted to Christianity. You know, we could argue whether it was an authentic Christianity or. But at any rate, many people will say there's two kinds of Christianity, and I happen to agree with this, so I'm saying this is true. That uh, with a Constantinian shift, uh, state and church then seem to be fused. Uh, where prior to Constantine, if you talked about why Christ died, well, he died primarily in a Christus Victor understanding to defeat Satan, right? Uh, that's there in the New Testament. That, uh, but who was 
the prime representative of Satan for the early church? Well, the emperor, you know, that in some way the Rome, Nero, the various, uh, you know, the very name Augustus Caesar, he's august, he's claiming to be the prince of peace, he's claiming to be even God himself, and he'll use a lot of phrases uh, that are there in the New Testament that are true of God. So, when Constantine becomes himself a Christian, you can no longer identify uh, the defeat of evil with the principalities and powers. And so then the next thing we'll say is, oh, well, it's Anselm. And it's the whole Anselmian divide in which we have the founding of a kind of rational theology um, if you've heard of, do you all know what divine satisfaction, the theology, that's the, the doctrine that we've all been taught is the meaning of the cross of Christ. This is actually 1100 AD, long after the New Testament was written. And the idea is that he's using Roman law as a kind of artifice to defend the cross, the meaning of the cross, based on pure reason. This is the Anselmian project. And so divine satisfaction shifts from the notion of Christus Victor, that Christ died primarily to defeat Satan or the principalities and powers, to the idea that Christ died, in fact, to satisfy God's wrath or God's anger. And we could do a lot with Anselm. I think that Anselm is really the precursor to René Descartes, uh, who gives us, we'll talk about Descartes in a minute. Uh, But with this then, another divide in which we no longer have an authentic atonement, no longer an authentic church, no longer, uh, you know, an authentic uh, idea even of what the New Testament might be. We could go on and tell this story. I'm fascinating you, hopefully, with this story that I'm spinning here of the Thomistic divide and Thomas Aquinas, and he comes up with the analogy of being, the analogia entus. Uh, you know, that uh, the idea is that we do not know God in his essence, we do not know God directly. Uh, even in Christ, but that we know him analogously, that language and such things. Karl Barth will come along and he'll say, aha, the analogia entus is the Antichrist. And so Barth is going to trace the fall from an authentic Christianity. He's going to blame Thomas Aquinas primarily. And uh Certainly the church in Nazi Germany, when Barth was writing, uh, is given over to this kind of rationalistic Christianity. We could even do this, I could begin, I, I can spend, this story could just go on and on. In other words, I can just keep telling the story that in some way we've lost something and these are the problems and if we could just overcome these problems, we could regain an authentic Christianity. I like what N.T. Wright does. He says, well, actually, the division, we have a division between the kingdom of God and the cross of Christ, that the atonement theory that we have in some way is separated from 
the establishment of the kingdom of God as we have it in the New Testament. Um, I think that's true. I'm not. I'm not denying any of these. But do you get the point? I'm. I'm I keep telling you the story, and I'm just saying the story could go on and on. And of course, the idea is that in some way we've lost something, and authentic Christianity is missing. We could describe it. Um, even in terms of two kinds of theology, uh, that we could talk about, oh, we uh, need to return to a strictly historical, grammatical understanding, or a strictly, uh, you know, the, it's that it's theology itself that's in some way corrupted the church, and so if we could, in some way find return to the grammar of the New Testament and the language of the New Testament, that the true meaning is there. Or and so what the the historical grammatical or historical critical is saying, oh it's that theology itself that has corrupted the church. And that sometimes uh, the idea is that theology floats free from the grounding of scripture. Um we could tell it from the opposite perspective. Well, it's in fact we need an authentic theology uh, to bring us back to a correct understanding. Um, so uh, James Barr uses the term biblical theology as the attempt to find authority through a word-based approach. That's probably what we're often exposed to in a more conservative or fundamentalist Christianity. Um, certainly, historically, the, his, the, with the historical critical or historical grammatical method, uh, the idea is the meaning is there in the grammar, the meaning is in the text, and so the business of the interpreter is to continually uh, pursue the meaning through a historical Critical. I mean, that's the very name of it. Uh, uh, grammatical, you know, analysis, so that in some way we can arrive at the original thought, and one that seems to be a very elusive concept. Okay. What I'm ha- have you gotten? What I'm saying here that everything the story is the same story. There is the gap between. Uh, that separates us and we can again I think that we can say yes there's truth to this story but we haven't uh, gotten to the nub of the problem perhaps in fact what I would go ahead and claim is I could just tell this story about everything we could talk about the individual as containing a gap within themselves and it's the impossibility of closing this gap We could talk about society, you know, who are we? Are we the individual or are we the social? We could talk about it in terms of wave, you know, you've heard of quantum mechanics and higher energy physics. You know, is a particle, is it a particle of light or is it a wave? Uh, Are who, you know, think, look at the faces around you. You know, is it their face that is who they are? But if you rip the face open, there's a skull. You know, and uh, so that there always seems to be some positing of this gap. Uh, if this is all too abstract for you, I'll reduce it down to. Have you ever read Shel Silverstein? Uh, 
uh, he, I think, didn't he write The Giving Tree? But he also wrote another book uh, called The Missing Piece. Have you, any of you read The Missing Piece? Uh, it's the story of this circle. And the circle has a little sl- pie, uh, slice of pie shape cut out. And the story is the circle's rolling on. He said, I'm looking for my missing piece, looking for my missing piece. <laughs> you know, and the, the little circle rolls up the mountains and through, you know, the, the hills. And he stops and talks to the butterflies and uh, looking for his missing piece. Um, but then, uh, you know, through various episodes, he, the pe- he finds a piece that's too big or it's too small or he squeezes it too tight and breaks it or but then he finds the piece and it's just right but suddenly he can't sing because his the piece is there clogging up his singing and he can't really stop and talk to anybody he can't enjoy life Um, he can't really engage the world what Silverstein is doing with a children's story is what I just did with, I can tell you the story of theology, I can tell you the story of, you know, in biblical interpretation, there's this missing piece. Um, and in some way, hold that out as the lure to keep you listening to the story. Now, what the missing piece discovers, and I don't think this is the truth of the story, uh, I'm going to propose an alternative understanding. He finds the piece, you know, he can't, and he spits it out and he starts singing, I'm looking for my missing piece. You know, he, the, 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 the search was the thing. Um, I don't know if you ever watched Wiley e. Coyote and Roadrunner. Mm-hmm. You know, what every cart, you just knew there was a certain satisfaction that, that Wiley e. Coyote was going to chase the Roadrunner and he'd get all of this equipment to capture you know uh, various ropes and pulleys and and they always seemed to go wrong you know they'd always the the anchor anvil would fall on wily coyote's head instead of roadrunner made you suspect that maybe the acme company would not last very long if they continued to produce such shoddy equipment Uh, in fact one wondered if perhaps wily coyote was not himself unconsciously causing the equipment to fail. Um, in our development, I can tell tell you the story of our own development in the same way. You know, how is it that we come to a kind of self uh, uh, consciousness or realization? You know, if you're a child, that when you're a child, uh, eventually you realize that you and your mother are separate. And there is this, in psychology or psychoanalysis, a kind of separation anxiety. But guess what? If you're never separated from your mother, you're never constituted as an individual uh, in and of yourself. On the other hand, if your mother smothers you, you know, with love and attention and um, in ja- in Japan, there's a whole body of literature called it's called Japanese mother literature, searching for mother. You know, that uh, the idea is that you are 
in this understanding. I'm not agreeing with this understanding. I'm still telling you a story here, so don't get too fascinated with my story. Um, in this understanding, the self is constituted by separation and absence. We almost might describe it as a kind of creation ex nihilo. That, you know, how are we ourselves? It's that we're constituted with loss, with separation. Uh, one way this is described in uh, childhood development, you've heard me tell the story of when a child sees itself in the mirror and sees its image and says, you know, for the first time, many children learn to speak. At the same time, they can recognize their own image. And they say, that's me. But the question is, is that the kid in the mirror? Uh, is that thing that we might call the ego, uh, that object, is that, in, is that something that is obtainable? You know, this is the thing that Freud observes. His daughter leaves him babysitting one day, and the little kid uh, is, usually cries when his mother leaves, but this day the kid has a, a spool, it's a little boy, and he takes the spool. He stops crying and he begins to play with his spool. And in German, in German baby talk, which I don't speak either German or German baby talk, he, he says, you know, he throws it and it, he says, gone, it's gone. And so he speaks for the first time, then he pulls the thread and he, da, it's there. And the, the whole game, of course, Freud uh, posits the idea that this is the game of language but it's a game that's played out over the abyss of the absent mother. Uh, I'm still telling you the story, so uh, uh, let me tell the story in a story. Let's that there, uh, you know, three brothers. Let's say that the, that their uh, parents die and leave them an inheritance, um, and you know the first brother. He would really like to take that money and invest it and make a million dollars. But he make, meets a, 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 a girl and they marry and have children. And so he kind of abandons his dream of making money. But, you know, has the satisfaction of a family. But always thinks in the back of his mind. Then the second son takes the money and he tries to invest it and does everything he can, but everything just fails. So his whole life he's pursuing, you know, doubling or tripling his money. And so he he never attains what it is. The third son, he takes the money and in fact is quite successful. And he was hoping to earn $10 million and does earn $10 million. But what do you think happens when he gets the $10 million? It's not quite enough and so the point being every option in some way every pursuit uh, is a kind of uh, happiness or for fulfillment or the goal eludes us just like I was telling you in theology the thing is in some way it's missing maybe on TV the, the show that portrays this best is the uh, I've watched a few episodes, I'll say, of uh, the zombie show, you know, what is it, The Walking Dead. You know, they're just, this, you know, food, meat, you know, brains, I want brains to eat. 
you know. And they just, they just, uh, they're dead, you know. They're gone. But this drive to get brains—is it brains that they're they're wanting? Uh, <laughs> and so, the, what I'm describing in this loss of things is that there is something missing, and the drive then is a drive that is even stronger than death itself. They're all dead, and they're still driven. And, of course, this is what Freud called the death drive. Uh, We seem to be forever left out into the cold, looking into the warm room. Everybody else is having a party, and in some way, we've missed out on the fun. We've missed out. It's not just you, Christian. Uh, (laughs) So... um, What I think I'm telling you, and the way that stories get told, even the story of theology, even the way in which we read the Bible, does not take account of our predicament, of the problem. And so, before we, what I'm trying to do is set up and say, before we even begin a class like this in theology, or as we begin, You know, how do we read the Bible? What is it we're doing? We almost have to recognize the game that is often played and not fall into playing this game, telling the story of everything the way that it usually gets told. If you read in Genesis, we have setting up the categories that I'm describing to you. You know, in Genesis 1... There is the picture of God breathing life and the, the Hebrew words. Are any of you taking Hebrew? So, Oh, well, then you can correct me here. But uh, the word, I think, is hayah, breath. But it's the breathing into Adam. And then the tree is called the tree of breath and uh, breathing, you know, the breathing, it's the same word, it just gets repeated poetically, but every time it's repeated, it's repeated with a difference. It's, it's describing the tree, it's describing human life, it's describing the breath of God. And then when Eve sees the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the imagery there is that she's sort of losing her breath already. She's panting after uh, this tree. And we have then here the entry that Paul will describe of desire. You know, I did not know what it was to covet. I did not know what it was to desire uh, apart from the command, thou shalt not covet. And so she goes panting after the tree seeing that it was good for food, good for wisdom. Uh, And prior to this, of course, Satan had set up the whole screen of a lie. He said, oh, you won't die when you eat of this tree, that you will have knowledge, and this knowledge is going to make you like God. It's the wisdom of God. The way I think the story that I've just told you, a key part of it, is that we're presuming that in some way the thing missing, the knowing, the exp- and knowing in Hebrew is not just a head knowledge, it's an experiential knowing inclusive of that, but not 
uh, simply that, that this knowing in some way will uh, establish our being, will give us completion, will fulfill, fulfill, fulfill us. That's the lie, right? That's the lie of Satan. So in a sense, everything I've just told you is true. I've told you a true story. I think that these things are true. But in a sense, this truth coheres. It's a picture that ultimately is doing the same thing. It's holding out a lure and saying, uh, if you want to really establish your being, you want to find fulfillment, you need to overcome this obstacle. Uh, and of course, the obstacle is pictured in Genesis and in Paul as the obstacle of the law, the prohibition. You have to break through the prohibition. You have to obtain the truth, but the truth is on the other side of the law. God is, in some way, you know, when you, if you believe Satan, if you believe this lie, the image is that God is in some way holding out on us that uh, the tree of life is itself a kind of trick, a lure that you know is in the lie of Satan, drawing people away from the, the truth, the lie, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That God knows that the day that you eat of it, you will be like God's. You know, you, you won't die And so the very experience of loss, of the gap, is experienced as a kind of life. Think here of Saul, or Shel Silverstein's story. The little missing piece is only constituted as a missing piece. Uh, Think of the child, you know, missing its mother, is only constituted as a subject because of the missing mother. Be, the 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 loss, the absence, the creation from nothing and constituted by nothing puts us in pursuit of life. And in this false understanding, that pursuit itself is seen then to be the way in which we uh, uh, attain life. I believe that we can picture both Judaism and Christianity in this false understanding. Uh, both can be, you know, they posit a gap, something's missing, something's absent. Uh, Where is the gap? Well, in Judaism, we might say the gap is between God and man. God stands outside the world. God is totally transcendent. And when you go into the Holy of Holies, what's there? It's an empty room. There's nothing there. Uh, And that empty room... Uh, is just a picture of the isolation. It's a series of walls. Christianity is done in such a way that the gap is read right into God himself so that there's a gap between Christ and God and uh, that Christ is in some way, uh, you know, in, on the cross constitutes or the, this gap is, is illustrated. Um You've heard of Rene Descartes and the picture there, you know, I think, therefore I am. Historically in philosophy, this is the way the gap gets constituted. 
Modernity is the idea that in our own thinking, in our own thought, I think, therefore I am, that that's the beginning place, that's the point of departure. What Kant comes along and says, oh, there's a gap between the thinking thing and the thought. Hegel says, oh yes, there is a gap, but the gap is the answer. In other words, just live in the negation, live in the gap. So we could do the history of theology, we could do the history of philosophy, we can do the physics, we can do child development. I believe that this is just the way that every story gets told. Uh, And we could just retell this story again and again. But I've uh, what gets left out, of course, is what I've just said in Genesis 3. Oh no, the whole thing is a picture that is given to us, is constituted not as the reality of the human condition, but what scripture is saying, this is the unreality. This is the lie. This is the thing that has been posited in the, the human fall, the fall of man. Uh, this is, you know, if you want to, uh, I don't hold to an Augustinian original sin, but this is the picture of the, the original predicament. The lack in hum- human life becomes the power that controls and orders that life so that religion, science, philosophy, everything, even Christianity, gets told in such a way that it fits that order. What is ultimately lacking, I think, and this is what I think Paul is doing in Romans 7, but I think it's also what's happening uh, throughout Scripture, what's missing? Well, when we read Genesis, what is missing is life itself, right? That Adam and Eve, when they traded in the tree of life for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they traded the pursuit of life through knowing for life itself or knowing God. The pursuit, the desire, the absence became definitive of everything about them. Prior to the fall, they had access to life. They had an abundance of life. They knew God, and they knew the world in and through God. Um, So life itself is what's missing. And whether we call it that, you know, grabbing all the gusto you can, the missing piece, mother's missing, Uh, the uh, idea of wealth or whatever it is, whatever the missing object might be, I believe the object, be it money, wealth, sex, power, whatever that object is, ultimately is representative of life itself. What we are in pursuit of, what is missing within us, is, is the very thing that is given to us, you know, through... God, that is life. But the way in which life is given to us through Christ is not the way that we would get it in and through the various systems of this world. That is, in and through some sort of ecstatic experience. So, uh, the, the law of sin and death is a logic, an order 
to living a way of even reading scripture if we read scripture and we don't recognize the problem if we do theology and we don't recognize the problem then the danger is we're just going to be we'll be religious perverts and no better off our christianity will just become a part of our perversion and so we'll feel good about our perversion because it's now ordained by god uh in some putting up little scare quotes there, that that uh, we are still a part of a death drive, of a sinful drive. And so what my point would be is we need to begin again. We need to, first of all, we need to understand what a human being is, what is a self. We need to have a different understanding of language. Uh, theology, theologo, Logos, where in scripture do we encounter the term logos? You know, everybody knows. John, in John. And so many people would say, actually, the pursuit of theology, which is our topic, really begins with this idea of an alternative understanding of language, an alternative understanding of the logos of God. And, of course, that's what you have in Genesis. You have human wisdom. And human wisdom is then going to be displaced by the cross of Christ, right? That this is Paul's picture in 1 Corinthians. That we do not come to God through knowing good and evil, through ethics or wisdom, but we know God in and through Christ those two ways of knowing, those two systems of language, those two things are not on a continuum, but they are discontinuous. And so I would say that human language is always caught up in this lure of desire, this game that I've described to you. And you can do all of your theology and all of your Christianity still playing the game. But you've got to understand, no, we've checked out as Christians Hopefully, we check out of that pursuit, of that understanding, that we really are given life in Christ. Uh, we really do overcome sin. We really can be overcomers, but we got to understand what it is that we're overcoming. Let me pause there. I said a lot. Does anybody have any questions? That was my set it. Uh, I've I've given you a negative picture, right? So oh. can you like repeat like I was gonna try to understand like the what we need to do, like to begin of uh, the alternative way So so that yeah, your question is the question. If 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 it's not if I haven't been telling you the truth and telling you this story. And this story, you understand, is a way of reading the Bible. And that's really what I'm trying to say is that we need, we need to have clear what it is our problem is. And so your question, how do we begin? How, what do we do? And, and, of course, we've already begun, right? We've all already begun this project of doing theology, of reading the Bible. We're sort, we sort of find ourselves in the middle of it. And so it's not that we're just beginning from scratch, but we already recognize uh, that 
there is this problem and we're seeking you know the resolution the way that the resolution is given to us is not in and through compulsively repeating the search for the missing piece it's not in and through trying to fulfill our desire that's sin right sin sets us in relationship you know if we think of this whole structure that i've described to you as idolatry what is the idol the idol is the thing the object the thing that you would obtain where is the idolater the idolater is always removed from the idol and there's a gap and a space in between and so you would you have a kind of desire i mean the idolater seen as a picture of human desire and you would obtain whatever that is that the idol would hold out, whether it, you know, whether it's a literal idolatry or the systems of idolatry that I've described. Um, and so I think step one is to recognize that Christianity does not exist in an idolatrous scene. It is not uh, dependent upon the gap between, you know, in the Old Testament is pictured as the gap between the male idol is usually pictured as some phallic symbol and the female uh, worshiper who is attempting to obtain the object. Uh, that is a false understanding of the way in which we come to God. That desire is itself built upon maybe the direct experience of a lie. Human desire is a lie. Can I put it that way? Uh, that the desire is constituted in such a way. You know, this was the Simpsons. I, I don't watch the Simpsons much, but who's the little girl in the Simpsons? That, Sarah Maggie. Huh? Maggie? The baby or the girl? The, the little girl. Lisa. Lisa. So Lisa, she's, she's going to perform a, 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 an experiment at school and she wants to, so she takes a mouse and puts him in a box and you know she puts uh, some really nice cheese on the other side of a glass wall and the, the mouse will run up you know, and hit its head against the wall and eventually gives up and there's some you know kind of crummy stuff that he can eat kind of garbage and finally he gives up pounding his head against the wall and eats the garbage instead just to satisfy then she puts her brother what's the brother's name bart. Uh, bart yeah she puts bart in the box and she puts some really nice chocolate you know on the other side and of course bart never gives up he just keeps banging his head against the wall uh <laughs> in in a sense that's the human drive that's the zombie drive that's the death drive that we just keep banging our, our heads against this wall we're not going to give up on human desire even though eventually you beat your head bloody right running up against that wall that is the lure is always there just as I was holding out a lure in the story that there's something missing it's sort of the cheese or the chocolate on the other side of the wall that's not true that is sort of a false understanding of the direct access that we have to God through Christ 
And that's the story that I want to, that's the positive story that I want to begin to unfold and say, but, but, you know, should I fall into, in other words, uh, I think that it's a continual temptation to say, here's this lure or here's this thing. Uh, and if we could just do it this way, or if we could just believe in this way, or if we could, well, know that we have been given access to God. The picture in the in Hebrews is that we can enter into the Holy of Holies. That it's not an analogy. Welcome. I'm back. <laughs> we were missing it. But it's, but in Christ, but the point is we need to get over will Christianity fulfill our desire or is in fact the problem that the very nature of that desire be it in Bible reading theology in other words how will we do this how will we constitute it we can constitute it in such a way that it fits the contours of this false understanding. And again, I didn't say it was totally false. I've told you some stories that were partly true. Can we, you know, the, the picture even in the Restoration Movement that we want to restore New Testament Christianity. I think in a sense, it's always available to us. We can always have access to the body of Christ in and through the koinonia, in and through the fellowship. Uh, and that's what the New Testament is written about is that it's there that the where two or three are gathered together that I am there in your midst it's not a difficult thing it's not a hard thing and so what we would do in our continual myth making is it would always we'd always just miss it it would always just be something that no we're we're, uh, we're setting up the pursuit in the wrong way so I've only said a negative thing so so far Chris Uh, and so the the question is how do we do this Paul says I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and this is fulfilled in the cross of Christ what is the wisdom of the wise I think it's the way I've you know the the idea of the the knowledge of good and evil in some way we through epistemology through our knowing we can arrive at the being of God can you know your way into being like God? Um, well, no, actually that Christ has defeated that absence, that's nothing, that nothingness. And you're off to, uh, I forgot where you are. Chick-fil-A, yes. Um, may, so maybe, I'll, let me stop there. I'll take, I'll take up here next week and so that Sharon doesn't. Well, we, we can just we can we can just stop and talk a little bit. But I'll I'll Chris, I'll answer your question. The answer to your question is the rest of the class. Oh, that's oh. <laughs> a short one. Okay. But let's. I'm looking forward to writing the answer. So you've just been telling a story. I've just been telling a story. You're learning. Yes. So then, uh, how do you use this uh, Agron pose? To Purloin letter. Oh, yeah, yeah. As. Well, it seems to be another illustration of the same exact. Yes, yes. Where. What was that? The purloin letter. 
So, has, has anyone ever read The Purling Letter by Edgar Allan Poe? No. Awesome. Makes me feel slightly... Tell, tell them the first story of so, The Purling Letter. There's a scene where there's the queen and the king, and they're having a discussion, and there's just this letter sitting on the end table, and it has this secret that the queen has hiding from the king, and it's just sitting out in the open, and it's dictating everything that she does and says and how she interacts with the king. The whole time they're talking, it's just a conversation, and but she's just basically panicking about this. Well, the pope comes in. It's the pope, right? No, he's a dip, the king comes in and, and the, the king comes in and she and then a diplomat comes that's in that's where it is the diplomat he comes in and I haven't fudged on it because I just know the, the plot I haven't actually read it myself he comes in and he exchanges that letter somehow but you, yeah. you never know you've never seen what's in the letter and then the diplomat goes back to his house with that letter and then some police officers of some sort come in, and they're looking for this letter. And it's just sitting out and about, just in the open. The exact same scene is recreated. The diplomat is panicking and interacting with the police officers because the letter is out in the open. And one of the police officers ends up exchanging the letter with an empty letter. And so then the story's over, but it's just a cycle. The same scene happens over again with different characters, and you, you're left with no knowledge whatsoever. So the letter is the letter. You're gonna get caught. What I don't understand, like you. The, the point of the, the desire. The point of the story is, you know, you never know what's in the letter, uh-huh. but everybody's action revolves around this letter. So the first scene, the the king. The queen is reading a letter, and the king comes in, and she sees the king, and suddenly tries to. She doesn't have time. She lays the letter down, and about you know, right after that, a minister of state comes in, and he sees the way the queen is acting in front of the king, and realizes that the letter is that she's trying to hide, and so he goes over and you know, picks it up and replaces it. And then the queen hires a detective, Dupont. And Dupont, you know, he hears the story and he says, ah, yes, I know where the letter is. Meanwhile, the, uh, the police detective has searched, literally they've measured the building where the minister of state lives and they've looked in every square inch they've pounded the walls they've looked in the furniture you know they've they've taken special needles and probed they if you think of it in terms of biblical interpretation that they've used the scientific method and combed every square inch of the building and yet the letter remains hidden and so dupont goes and he sees that, oh, they're at the fireplace. There's a series of things. And he's laid the letter out in plain sight, but he's hidden it behind. Uh, he's folded it in an envelope and obscured it in such a way that it's there in plain sight. And so what gets repeated uh, is, you know, DuPont immediately sees the Minister of State getting nervous 
maybe the, you can tell the same. Did you see the recent Mission Impossible movie? Uh, and I think, you know, you never know. There's it, They call it the rabbit's foot, right? What's the rat? You don't know. But the Russians want the rabbit's foot. And the Americans want the rabbit's foot. And they're willing to give anything for the rabbit's foot. Uh, and so the whole movie takes place, and you never really know what the rabbit's foot is. It's this thing that controls all... Well, actually, most every story does this. If you go back and watch Hitchcock, do you know who Alfred Hitchcock was? He, his movies just do this blatantly. You know, there will be a suitcase and... You know, what do they call it? He called it a MacGuffin, you know, that it doesn't matter what it is. It's that this thing controls the actions of everybody. Because one wants it, the other wants it. Because the queen, it's important to the queen, the minister of state, everything rests upon this letter. Everything rests upon the rabbit's foot. Everything rests upon the, the MacGuffin. What is it? Well, in the end, it it doesn't need to be anything. It's just nothing. There's nothing there. And so that's the point with the purloined letter, uh, is that uh, human desire is ultimately mimetic. It's an imitation of other people's. Why do you desire what you desire? Because other people desire. Because you've learned desire that you're always put into pursuit of something. But what the something might be is never attainable. You can't get a handle on it. You can't get a hold on it. Um, and should you, you know, should the child return to its mother and be absorbed back into its mother? You know, this is the picture in Zen Buddhism. What happens when all your fu- desires are fulfilled? Well, with that kind of desire... It is a return to Mother Earth. You've actually died and returned to the dirt. Uh, the idea is that they're equating life and desire. That's the story of the missing piece. That's the that in some way you've got to have something missing to be alive. That the loss is the life. In terms of scripture, the lie is the truth. That, uh, and what we would say is, I think as Christians, no, actually, uh, there may be, it may be a sense in which the truth inheres in. In other words, there may be some truth in this lie. Satan tells some truths, you know. I told you a series of stories. I think they were all true in as far as they went. But what is ultimately not there is that we always put up an obstacle. We always put up a barrier. Uh, And it's almost like we need the barriers. It's like Wile E. Coyote is going out and destroying the Acme equipment at night so he can continue to chase the roadrunner. You know, what would happen if Wile E. Coyote caught the roadrunner? You know, he had... I think there's actually a cartoon in which, you know, they're having breakfast. He's finally eating the roadrunner. And, you know, the other coyote says, well, now what are you going to do? You know, he said, I don't know. And 
shows him, you know, years later he's drinking beer and watching daytime time television. And he doesn't have anything to do anymore, you know. <laughs> um, so the, the pursuit of desire in some way, and we may not consciously articulate it this way, but I think this is actually the way that in some way our, we are constituted. We imagine that pursuit of our desires is the thing. That is the life force. That is what we're all about. No, that doesn't have to be the case. But we've got to recognize that everything can be constituted in that way. This was the genius of Edgar Allan Poe. He It's a little story you can read in ten minutes. But he, he gets it. He, he saw very early on. The whole story revolves around ult- ultimately a missing piece. And absence. Yeah, good, good point. So, what did John do with that? Uh, subconscious and the law. Yeah, that there, there is the law of sin and death. That, um, in some way, the obstacle of the law. You know, this is the way Paul is describing it in Romans seven. I do what I don't want to do, and what I want to do, I don't do. Uh, that there is this gap. There is this split within us. And ironically, many people read Romans 7 as if that's Christianity. I think that's interesting. See, you can do the whole New Testament like you're a pervert. I mean, that's what Paul's... Paul, by pervert, I mean a technical term. A pervert is somebody who imagines you know, that there is life in the law that they can uh, in some way, either through transgression or through keeping the law, that there's life in the law. Paul's saying, uh, you know, he's describing this perverse relationship to the law. And so it's ironic that many people picture Christianity as a continual struggle, as this agonistic conflict that we're always involved in. We're always looking for the missing piece in scripture, in the historical grammatical method, in theology, whatever it might be. So my point today, Chris, was a very simple one. Whatever we do, let's not do that. Let's get that and say, no, that's the problem. And we can fall into doing that in our Bible reading. You know, this is the whole pietistic thing. If I just read my Bible enough, you know, bow to... Mecca, no, not Mecca, but the, uh, you know, that if I just am pious enough, I read my Bible enough, I pray enough, you know, I'm almost there. We can do it in our worship experience, you know, that I think this is the way that the whole worship experience is geared, that it is a kind of picture in which we are attempting to obtain God. But the way that we get to God is through a music that would in some way transport us elsewhere, compulsively repeating something as if if we repeat the same thing over and over, that it will bring us to a different place. No, that's Bart Simpson beating his head against the wall. You don't get God by bloodying your head. Uh, You don't. Uh, so that our, our worship experience, the way that we do church, uh, it is like 
the economics of capitalism. You know, how does capitalism function? It always holds out a new and better product that you know you can obtain this. So, in as much as the church has been co-opted by a capitalistic understanding and is co-opted by business, so too it operates on the principle of desire that it is just, you know, if you just hear this sermon by this preacher and this, you know, worship music by this group, or uh, that in some way that will be the thing that transports us. And no, it's just the, the same story told as church or the same story told as worship or uh, the, the, very, the very experience of it. You know, that's, to my mind, the charismatic movement is that people say, oh yes, I have obtained an ecstatic first order experience with God. You know, a slain in the spirit. Or what they're describing is this kind of transport to another world. This is this whole the whole picture in American, you know, transcendental experience. You ever read Henry David Thoreau or or Emerson? You know, it's pure paganism. That it's my favorite paganism. Uh, you know, Walden Pond. That you know that you can. But what they are picturing is that in some way, in nature itself, that there is this transcendental experience that's available to us, that God is there to be had. And so God is available to us, but not in the way that we, he, we would make him available through the pursuit of uh, desire, the missing piece, the, the absence. God makes himself present to us in and through his word, in and through the fellowship of the saints, in and through the koinonia of uh, reading and encountering Christ together. But the way in which Christ comes to us is not in, in and through a kind of you know, ultimate uh, gratification of our desires, but in and through taking up the word of God and walking with it, walking as Christ walked. And so... It may be that we need to reshape or rid ourselves of the very notion of the fulfillment of, you know, will you obtain happiness? Will you? Uh, well, happiness is very elusive, isn't it? Uh, it seems like those other people have it. But in Christianity, I think there's a deep joy that is available to us in Christ that is simply there for us. And so uh, I don't want to make theology or reading the Bible another lure, another story that I can tell you and just keep dragging you along. Oh, next week, you know. I I almost did that this week, though, didn't I? (laughs) But I just told you the answer, that it's a very simple answer. No, no, that that, uh, here is uh, God with us. Here is the incarnation. The incarnation is not a half-truth. It's not a uh, you know that uh, God is going to transport us elsewhere. It's that God has come to us in Christ Jesus. He has made Himself available in 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 and through the human condition. The family of God, constituted in the body of Christ, gives us access to who God really is, not to that false other, the missing piece the absolute law, the transcendental 
you know, uh, that's not what we have in Christ. What we have in Christ is God with us. God who walks in the garden in the cool of the day, who walks in the road to Emmaus with us, who is there among us. Um, And so it's a completely different picture of who God is and how we come to God. Maybe we have to become atheists. That can't be right. But (laughs) that that I'm afraid that we believe in the wrong God very often. We believe in the God of Romans 7 who we would come to in and through the law. But what we have instead in Christ is Abba, Father, in Romans 8, in which the law no longer mediates God to us. God is not there as absolute other, but God is there through Christ as one who is on the order of, you know, a papa or one who's present. So, just in the same the missing piece is something that we have created. To, yeah. To, yeah, to make the, the gap, to make everything. Just to make that life interesting or something? Yeah, yeah that, that in some way we've taken... We've lost something. We are at a loss. But we're masochistic enough that we like our loss. That we enjoy our desire. That we're killing ourselves, banging our head against the wall, trying to get the piece of chocolate, and it feels kind of (laughs) good. Right? That in some way, yeah, that that it's there, the gap is there, the desire is there. And we mistake that for life itself. That's the lie in Genesis 3. You know, you mistake the tree of life for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And then it's even more of a problem to think that within that mind frame that God can fulfill that desire. Yeah, that, yeah. if you set it up and you say, okay, here's the story... That something's missing and Jesus will be my boyfriend and fulfill my desire or Jesus will be, you know, Jesus can fit into the gap there yeah. just like any other. If you, you trust know. in Jesus, he'll give you the chocolate. Yeah. Jesus is your chocolate. He is your piece of cheese. Uh, no, that's not Christianity. That's just more paganism under the name, under the guise of Christianity. And that's why Christian baptism seems so significant, because it's the opposite of seeking anymore, like seeking it, searching that desire. Instead, you're you're no longer seeking that desire. That, yeah, you, you've in fact... Uh, uh, abandoned you know what place replaces desire in Paul is hope so if you go chapter 7 it's all about desire desire is the controlling factor you just repetitively compulsively repeat attempting to get the you know to get to God is what he's describing chapter 8 I there is no desire in chapter 8 of Romans in the Greek in the English that in bad translations, they get in. Uh, they'll put desire there. Uh, 
But in the Greek, uh, it's not there. And I think what gets repeated on the same order in chapter 8 of Romans is Christian hope. Desire, you know, think about the construct of desire. It's all about an immediate fulfillment of a seen thing. What is hope? Hope is not seen. Uh, It's based upon the word of God. Christ Jesus is held out as the image that we now pursue, but we can't see Christ. How do we obtain Christ? Not through the idol or the icon, but in and through the word of God. So the shift is a shift. You know, the fall of man was a shift to the visual, to images. In John, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life Uh, that describes the fall, that describes the human subjectivity, that we're driven by human desire, we're, you know, by pride, that is itself a kind of cover, like the hiding of Adam and Eve. And what we shift to then is from the visual to the auditory, in which uh, we are clothed in Christ. Uh, that we are reunited, we're reconciled. You know, so the image of the fall is people are split, they're divided, they're static, they're dead, and the the renewal is that all of that thing, all of that is undone in Christ. I, I hope, yes, I hope. Now, I I hope you don't misunderstand me. There's actually a guy uh, Joel shared with me, Peter Rollins. He's a young guy, and he was uh, he's lecturing at, at Fuller. And uh, he's using Zizek, he's using what I've just said in many ways, but he's telling that story as the answer. In other words, he's saying, okay, yes, here, it's the missing piece, it's the gap. Get used to it, man. Just live in the loss, live in the angst. Isn't that what the crucifixion was about? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That even God is forsaken. You know, that God forsakes Christ. And so we have to live in the darkness of nothingness and death. And that's what the cross teaches us. Now he's doing that under the guise of Christianity. It's interesting. He's doing straight nihilism. But he's calling it Christianity. It's a really dark picture, but in a sense, he's also telling, you know, he's saying, well, here's the story. He understands this is the way the story gets told. But he's just saying, yeah, that's the story. That's all we have. Uh, Enjoy it. Because you're never going to obtain true enjoyment, true happiness. It's always the happiness of the other. It's always, uh, it's those foreigners that always have the, the happiness, you know. They always seem to have good time. That mariachi music, and you know, they're all, they have all the happiness. Don't you just hate those foreigners? <laughs> so, so you can you can posit the happiness, and you know, it's always somewhere else. So I don't want to, when I'm saying we have to have an atheist moment, I don't mean that 
I don't really mean that in the sense that, no, I'm not an atheist. But neither am I a Christian pervert. No, I believe in God, but the God that I believe in is the God that we have in Christ Jesus, who is not far from us. That's the picture in Romans. He's, you know, in your heart, in your, you know, uh, Paul is picturing the word that is near you in your heart, that that word, as close as a word is to you, so is the presence of God available, available to us in the word of Christ. You want, you got something, Miguel? No. <laughs> I don't so, want to hear Miguel's comment. Christ then displaces the whole idea that there is a God. Yeah, that, that, uh, yeah, that there is... You know, ultimately, what is the gap? Death. Right? That, uh, and you can read into death. This is really what the missing piece is constituted of. So what does the world religions do? In, in a sense, they make death the answer. The pass- death is the doorway. Death is the passage. So why the death of Christ? What is it that's happening in the death of Christ? Well, it's an overcoming, it's a defeat of the thing that we would make the absolute answer. We would make, Isaiah says, a covenant with death, a covenant with the grave. We've entered into a covenant uh, as if death is a refuge as if death, you know, is a place that we can have true life. And so the death of Christ is an exposure and defeat of death. An exposure and defeat of death for whom? Well, for us. That's who he's saving. And we need salvation. What do we need salvation from? Not just the idea that death is something, a problem at the end of our life. No, that death is a way of life for us. And so we constitute death as the, you know, that is the thing that in some way is the nothing. It's the purloined letter. It's the, the, the gap. It's the missing piece. Uh, and we imagine that in that gap, in that missing piece, is the resolution. So death is not the answer. I mean, that sounds funny. You have to say that. But I think I could get up in a typical church and preach a sermon in which I portray death as the answer. And everybody, amen, brother. You know, don't you want to... Because what we are attuned to hearing, we, we think of the death of Christ as just one more death, as just one more sacrifice. But what the sacrifice of Christ is doing is undoing all sacrifice is undoing all idolatrous sacrifice and desire. It is a reversal and exposure of the death drive. In other words, what drives us is not life, it's the it's the the walking dead. Right? It's that drive. I mean that's Jesus. He says that though you are alive, you're dead. You're zombies, he said. I don't think he said that. <laughs> So yes, that was a long yes to your. And so I think we can, that what I just said, 
I hope, begins, once I tell this big story, here's the way that every story can be told, every life can be accounted for, and say, that's what is overcome and defeated in Christianity. It's not just one thing, it's not just morality or ethics or... No, it's everything. You can constitute everything. That is a system that is just the way the systems of this world always function. I think that's why it's so hard for people to understand, too, like, even to even talk about, like, resurrection and why it's never talked about in the church or anything like that. Like, it would be such a foreign idea for us to, like, be alive forever. Like, because then we're supposed to be basically dead forever, but alive, kind of, in a different way that we can't even understand. Yeah, that we don't we don't understand life enough to really imagine that resurrection would be enjoyable. <laughs> Who wants to pound their head against the wall forever and ever? <laughs> Keep climbing up the hill. Yeah, yeah. I'm looking for my missing piece. And so resurrection life is no, we begin to do it differently. We begin to fully enjoy I mean that's really what I I think I'm describing is that, the, that we can truly enjoy other people, we can enjoy creation, we can enter into the fullness of creation, we can really live. Uh, that, uh, you know, the one way of seeing the other is as a threat. You know, them Mexicans. I don't, I don't, I do that because Miguel's here, I just love because, <laughs> but, you know, they're, com- they're coming in and taking all the good stuff. <coughs> Uh, we can we can always objectify and you know uh, throw this on the other and do that with everyone you know that everybody's a threat to me because you're going to take you seem to have the the substance you seem to have the thing and I don't have it so uh, and they want to take it by force I need to get it I'm going to have to I can't I'm going to have to you know that's why Cain knocks his head over brother over the head with a rock because Abel has it, Cain doesn't. How do you get it? Well, you displace Abel, and that is the human. That is human violence. That is human uh, jealousy. Have you ever tried to figure out why you're jealous of other people? It's so, sort of a mystery, isn't it? Why would you be jealous of another human being? Because they have it. They've got the stuff. They've got the being. Um, and so in some way if they've got it I don't have it uh, that's a lie the whole, th- the whole thing so our envy, jealousy, rage, anger, malice are all part and parcel of human desire it sets us uh, against one another by definition because it is a zero sum game there's only so much cheese and chocolate to go around, or being, whatever it is. So my hope is that if we can get that, just I, I just felt like I need to get that on the table. Because should I ever fall into telling you stories, you can say, "Wait a minute, you're just doing that," you know. Because it, it I think it is always a, a, a way that we can portray things. If it weren't for that dirty Descartes, he ruined it for all oh, that Constantine. Boy, he ruined it for all of us. Or 
That is, we always throw up and say, well, here's, here was the problem. And what we don't realize is our tendency then is to create, we're creating these gaps, obstacles, uh, that are a way of misconstruing, misunderstanding the, the whole thing. Is scapegoating quality this, or is that off topic? This is scapegoating. Yeah, it is, it is scapegoating. So the, the, the scapegoat, you can read Christianity as scapegoat. You know, is Christ our scapegoat? Some people read it that way, that God was really pissed off and he needed to kill somebody. He's saying about that in chapel today. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, <God>. Yeah. <laughs> What was the song? Uh, Christ alone. Christ alone. The wrath of God was satisfied. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's just. I wasn't really paying attention while singing. Sharon just nudged me. Oh shit! Oh, and then I read the words. Yeah. I actually read them. Yeah. Yeah. I'll just stand yeah, so Christ is not the scapegoat, but scapegoating the scapegoating mechanism is a typical. That that's that I think is an explanation for why sacrificial systems, you know, function. Why is why does every culture have a sacrificial system of some kind? Because of well, that's a way of directing violence, human violence, and. Uh, you know, it's the, the boys at Columbine, if they had had a goat to sacrifice. Uh, I mean, that's, that is, uh, uh, the, the rage, just human rage and anger, is blind. What the religions of the world, in a sense, they do function in, uh, you know, they, they direct that violence so that a community, a community in which everybody is narcissistic sociopath, like the generation of Noah, that didn't make for a very happy living arrangement, you know. Um, but the way that I think, I think what's happening, that it religion, even pagan religion, is a kind of improvement, is that at least there's organized violence, and that's scapegoating. Scapegoating is, okay, it's, it's the, it doesn't matter, it's the foreigners, it's the... Uh, Actually, it is usually. It's the foreigners or it's the, you know, well, it's the old women in Salem, you know. It's the, uh, it could be, it could be anybody, you know. Or, it's those, it's the Jews. The Jews are the typical scapegoat. The Jews are a tricky people, aren't they? They look just like us. They talk just like we do. You know, it's sort of like aliens. You know, which is of the alien movies? Which are the most frightening? The most, the 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 frightening one is where they look just like us, and yet they're aliens. You know, so, so yes, yeah, scapegoating. Is this truly is addressing like every little thing about this world from movies to how we buy things to how we treat each other yes I think I, I if everything's not included I'm afraid we you know I don't want to miss anything that, uh, so uh, I mean I I get caught it's we all enjoy the the rabbit's foot the MacGuffin we you know uh, the 
it's just sort of the, the way that a story is, unfolds. But what clever storytellers, and this is Poe, what he's doing, he's saying, yeah, that it all revolves around something, but the something ain't anything at all. The, the something is constituted out of nothing. It's creation ex nihilo, without God. And that is the way that we often, as human beings, we are, this, we, if we are not the children of God, whose children are we? Well, in a sense, we're our own fathers. We're our own parents. We are we're created from nothing, you know. If you, you know, you want absolute free choice. Do we have absolute freedom in which nothing constrains us? Under what condition would, you know, would that be? Only where nothing is the only, is, is the only constraining factor. In other words, it couldn't be love or goodness or... Uh, so the radical evil and radical freedom, I think, are constituted out of the same substance. I may be going beyond what, but in other words, the, our our rebellion against God and the constraints that He that we've been given. You know, this is the picture in the New Testament of a kind of righteousness and in, uh, as, as slavery which may be rub you the wrong way. Because what we want is total freedom. What would total freedom look like? In which nothing constrains. Nothing hinders you. Death. Death. Pure death is the only... Which, I mean, that's the oxymoronic point here, is that, well, death is nothing. All right, yeah, yeah, don't let me keep you. But yeah, uh, it's, it's ended. Unless you guys want uh, a snack. <laughs> I was volunteering. Oh, it's a pleasure.